The subject for the evening talk is the teachings, not the teacher. I would like uh, initially in the talk to speak about the past for a few moments and then bring the relationship of the past in terms of tradition and <coughs> lineages and teachers and teachings into the present and then explore the specifics of that a little bit with you in terms of our here and now situation as we are here together. We might say that one of the distinctive characteristics of the teachings of the Buddha is the um, capacity that he had to keep the wealth of spiritual language and experiences and concepts into an everyday mode and thus to contribute to giving us a certain accessibility in intuition, in sense and experience to we might call the religious life or the spiritual life. And one of the other characteristics of the teachings is that to assist the process of remembrance, reflection and inquiry, the original teachings appear to have been formulated in a way which make for easy remembering. And I um, touched on one of those, what we might put or refer to as putting into categories, putting or placing the teachings into <coughs> simple groupings so that we may be able to remember them more easily. And this grouping of, of categories and themes assisted considerably through the centuries for the transmission to take place from one generation of teachers and teachings to the next, to the next, to the next. So where the societies, where the literacy rate was very low, where there were places where there was no access to published books and materials and all of that, it didn't inhibit the onflow and the continuity of the teachings right up until the present. And what we see too with the teachings <coughs> is that there has been a constant re-evaluation of them through the centuries as appropriate and useful for specific countries and <coughs> cultures and societies. And within the diversity and the differences, there's also has remained, I would say, a thread of sustained themes and continuity despite the differences in different places and different societies. And 
Another factor, and I think this is an important one <coughs> for our contemporary situation, is that through the years, through the ages, there have been periods in, as with any other form of um, movement and activity, where there have been highs and lows and almost fading out and coming back and so forth, and there have also been periods what could, I think, what one could only describe, in fact, as an actual renaissance of the teachings. And I would say, right at this present time, in the present uh, generation, we are, whether we realize it or appreciate it or not, actually in the process of participating in a renaissance of the teachings. And I'm reminded of what um, Arnold Toynbee, who was a famous, well-loved, uh, high highly respected uh, his historian, English historian said. He said, come the, this, and he said this 30, 40 years or more ago, he said, come the end of the 20th century, which of course is fast approaching, people will ask, well, what was the major event of the 20th century? And he said, and this historian incidentally chronicled and analyzed and described the rise and fall of some 20 civilizations over the last 6,000 years. And he said, people ask, well, what's the major event of the 20th century? And he said, some people will say, well, the, the, the horror of the, the world wars, the first world war, the second world war. Others will say the, uh, the splitting of the atom or nuclear fusion or wha whatever. And he said, from my analysis, of the historical processes over the, over the centuries. He said, I would say that the major event of the 20th century will be the bringing of Dharma, of Buddhism, to the West. And this way of looking and perceiving, and it perhaps to some degree is um, uh, shaped by immediacy of contemporary needs. In other words, I think there is a growing awareness at the contemporary time with this long-standing traditions and teachings and which have taken place, some awareness, and it's rapidly growing in my experience of being in the West the last um, 10 years now, awareness that we as a society, as a group of people in the industrialized world, are beginning to be aware we don't have all the answers in the way that we used to think we do. And all of our major institutions are being very severely questioned, both from outside the institutions and from people within them. So the science institution, the, sci the scientists, the medical institution, the religious institutions, the political institutions, all are being threatened, and it's producing what is called a, what might call a polarization. Those who continue to be entrenched in their fundamentalist beliefs, and those who are moving beyond them, 
And what is called, I, uh, speaking with um, Richard Capra about this um, some time ago, what is called the new paradigm. Fresh ways of living, being, acting, thinking, feeling in the world. Not new, but fresh ways. And other influences, other cultures, other societies are contributing to those influences. One of them is the Buddhist tradition. And I'm not saying that, if I may say, to promote um, B Buddhism. Frankly, as far as I'm concerned, there are more than enough Buddhists in the world already. What's far more Im important is people living with spiritual awareness and investigation. <coughs> so, in this long-standing um, teachings and the unfoldment which is taking place through those teachings, one may say, I think, say this, um, I think it's fairly, fairly, that the teachings appeal to concerned human beings, and I hope and like to think of them as touching inside of us, though we may or may not understand, understand but in touching an intelligent place inside of us. And I would say that these teachings, which have gone through the ages, are really towards people who are thoughtful people, who are intelligent people, who don't just take up some belief and adopt it as though it was some absolutism in any way. And I think perhaps this is what Toynbee is coming to in his um, commentary on the state of Western civilization, if one can call it that, and our relationship to it. <coughs> in all of that, because the teachings themselves can be and are, we might say at a high level or we might say at a, at a, a deep level, there <coughs> does come about the relationship of the teachings to oneself. And if I may, may I don't want to be too outrageous tonight, but that will be, um, <laughs> that in the teachings and what is occurring in the teachings, what, you, what was said two and a half thousand years ago from the inspiration of that Bodhi tree and what um, uh, was said by the Buddha for some 45 years while traveling around, basically in heart and in um, essence of, uh, of what is being said is no different from what is being said here in this room, what you would say, m say to each other as you explore teachings. The actual thread and the theme is, has a fairly sustained <coughs> basis to it. Let, let's just, let me just, just take a few uh, um, uh, examples of, of this. In the text, in the old uh, texts, which were initially, of course, were... Um, oral communications and, um, and then through the oral communications were put down on the uh, paper. The Buddha gives a talk and in this talk it's called the Satipatthana Sutra. And Sutra means, I mean, some people call it sermon, I think it's sermon brings up all sorts of wretched images. <coughs> we call it a talk, let's speak English. 
And his and Sati Patana, Sati means awareness, mindfulness, and Patana means foundation. So this talk is the four foundations for awareness, the four foundations for living mindfully, and it's one of those groupings, like the grouping I mentioned the other evening. Spiritual practice can be described, and again coming out of the the Buddha. Ethical foundation, referred to as sila, uh, meditative awareness and some and depth to it, called samadhi, and panya or prajna, called wisdom or understanding. That's one of the groupings. So, in this grouping of the four foundations of awareness, the Buddha uh, um, begins, and you might say, or some people, those of you who are familiar <coughs> with Christianity. You might, you might describe this as the Buddhist equivalent to the Sermon on the Mount. And in this, the Buddha says the four foundations for for awareness are body, feelings, mind, thought, so forth, and dharma. Dharma means that full awareness of the world around as much as the world of being human. <coughs> and he says, how d- then he asks, how does a, precisely the word is uh, practitioner, that's the word, and the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama uses the word frequently, how does a practitioner live with awareness of body? And then he says, a practitioner sits with legs crossed, the body held erect, <coughs> intent on awareness. Inhaling a long breath, he or she is aware of inhaling a long breath. Exhaling a long breath, he or she is aware of exhaling a long breath. Inhaling a short breath, or in or exhaling a short breath, he or she is aware of inhaling or exhaling such a breath. And thus one trains, thus one engages in the practice of body awareness. And then it goes further on from there and says in this practice, he lives, or she lives, with this awareness, and then goes from breathing to body, as we will do in a day or so. And the practitioner is aware of what is arising, the rising bodily sensations. The practitioner is aware of the, the passing of the body sensations. And, the Buddha continues, there exists this awareness to the extent necessary, so one is mindful of in-breathing and out-breathing and long or short, however it is, or one is aware of the body, the sensations arising and passing, and this awareness of this is, it says, to the extent necessary for wisdom, for awareness, so that one lives in this world independently and clinging and holding on to nothing whatsoever. If you you can understand, one lives mindfully and consciously and not in a non-clinging way by through just seeing the coming and going of the breathing, the coming and going of the sensations. And then he follows the process through with body, with feelings, with thought, with the Dharma. (coughs) <coughs> in, <coughs> pardon me, 
in all of this, the very much the emphasis here the very, is very much with the practice. And one of the dangers in what I would call an intelligent approach to life of looking through our experience immediately is that one begins to view, that one gets so much into the language, so much into the philosophical aspects, the theoretical aspects, that one loses touch with the bare experience. And unfortunately, Buddhism, with all its diversity and all the countless lineages and traditions and the many profound insights which pervade it, the danger is it becomes a head trip. And practice gets less. And the Buddha referred this to this number of times. He said people get into so much theory and instead of really get engaging in the practice, they set up schools and they begin to study. And this is referred to a number of times. And it rather reminded me, some years ago, I just left Asia, had been here you know, through the years and as a monk and so forth, and I was on the way home via California. I had heard there about the, the, the extent of the um, real, um, spiritual supermarket and the countless psychotherapies and these phenomenal number of people who would be described as being religiously promiscuous. And I was, I was invited to go to um, the university in, um, in Berkeley, which a f only a few years before, in the late si 60s, some of us, um, um, like myself, tended to regard Berkeley as a kind of international mecca of student protest. And I was invited to go to a class, a, a Buddhist class. And I went up to this classroom and um, my friend ushered me in and I just sat, you know, rather hopefully inconspicuously at the back of the class to listen to the, to the lecture on Buddhism. I was very fascinated this was going on. And the professor, <coughs> an Indian professor, <coughs> was speaking about the differences between the arahant, who that's uh, a person who is liberated from all um, confusions, very um, pure and um, gone beyond, and all of that, and the bodhisattva who lives right in the world and his or her life is um, dedicated to the welfare and liberation of others. And he was speaking about these two and the students there were sitting there and taking notes and all of this information pouring out and he was quoting from various texts which I had become familiar with. And then, after about 15 or 20 minutes, he spotted me, you know, just quietly listening, minding my own business really, in, in the classroom. And he sat at the front of the class there with his desk and he banged his hand on the desk and he said, I will not have people who are not students in my class. <laughs> and he, he was so angry. You know, and he'd just been talking about love and compassion <laughs> and, and you know, the difference between the Arahant and the, and the Bodhisattva. So, um, so I said to him, um, are you saying that you don't want me to stay? You know, 
So I had to leave, and it was one of those examples where theory is going on, the accumulation is, is going on, it's very interesting and informative, nothing to do with life. The gap is phenomenal. And the other aspect to bring it into the contemporary situation is, I would say that the teachings are profound and uh, deep and, and what they mean for consciousness and for hearts opening. And I would also say with regard to that, that one can't totally um, and this is balance here, make the teacher, whoever he, she is, I am, or whatever, <coughs> totally harmonized to the teachings. And similarly, one can't also totally divorce. Do you understand? One can try to explore it a bit more. In recent um, years, in the West, there has been this quite phenomenal transmission taking place from east to west. You know, basically it has now reached the point, in that respect, that if one really w wishes to receive a very wide range of Dharma teachings, serious and sustained and very beneficial, you don't come to the east anymore, you go to the United States. Because that's where much of the movement is taking place. Elsewhere, of course, in other parts, of the world, and there has been quite a substantial shift. The East continues, all parts of the East, including the, the subcontinent here, certainly gives great teachings in many, many, many ways through our sense doors every day. But the focused kind of teachings, much of it is to be found already in the West. And this, because of the interconnectedness of things, this the very fact that you and I are willing to participate in the process of receiving teachings, giving teachings, in that it is making very, very noticeably people in the third world, at least a growing number of thoughtful ones and caring ones, sit up and take notice and say, hey, wait a minute, maybe we've got teachings on our own doorstep here which we're rejecting because we're so obsessed with Western consumerism. And one of the things which people say, and say to me, as, um, and I'm sure to yourselves, well, really the East has got to go through consumerism, and once going through consumerism, it will see the folly of it, and then after that, go to something post-industrial, post-consumerism. Well, firstly, the Earth's resources can't possibly tolerate that way of thinking, nor can the people of the uh, Earth. And it seems to me, rather than just rejecting consumerism, which we sometimes like to do when we're to ourselves and to people in, a, in India and elsewhere, is to show something which is beyond it. It's never enough to young people to reject things. One needs to show something beyond it, which integrates this. And as I say, with teachers and teachings, the number that have gone to the West over the recent years, and some students, very understandably, 
have seen a gap between the teachings and the teacher. Sometimes it's been, the teacher seems to be more interested in empire building and having a big organization and making a lot of money and living a very high lifestyle and talking about voluntary simplicity. You think, well, there's a gap here. You know, or the teacher may be, may be saying, um, um, lead a celibate life for the brahmacharya life that will arouse your energy. Meanwhile, he's laying as many women as he can get his hands on. And, and, there's, and, the, and one sees uh, a gap, two varying degrees. So there's teachings, profound, important teachings, and there's teacher, so to speak, behind the teachings, and there's this gap. And students have, both in the East and in the West, find and have constant work, problems, in reconciling how big can the gap go. What's, what's, how big can the gap go between what's being said and what's being lived? And what tended to occur <coughs> during, the, during the years, and I think more in the 70s when, there's, when naivety reached um, epidemic proportions, <laughs> that, that it, there was a kind of attitude amongst many students was, oh well, it's usually a he, isn't it? Oh well, he's free or she's free and, and he or she, they can do anything they like, it really doesn't matter because that's what it is to be free. Which is another way of saying, this person is so much a victim of his tendencies, he does this, he does that, he does this, he does that, and it's called being free. So, sometimes the gap was enormous, and frequently the gap grew because people did not protest. People did not ask questions, people did not go into it. And the other factor which I think is important in the other way is I personally don't know of any teacher, and if I may say, having spent um, you know, years here in the East, ten years in the East, six years as a um, monk, travelled the length and breadth of uh, this country, and plenty of exposure to teachers and teachings, any teacher, any of us who are in this privileged role, who can match up to the quality of those teachings? Because the teachings are so profound in that respect, and one, one cannot. You know, sometimes my, my, my uh, partner, my, my uh, ex-partner, ex Granny, <coughs> she would say to me, Christopher, I can't, when I, when I forget something, drop something, not do something, the usual thing. She said, I can't believe it. You are a teacher of mindfulness. <laughs> so there's the teaching of mindfulness going on, as one example, and here's Joe Bloggs Christopher <laughs> preaching it morning, noon and night, and there's a gap. And the gap is there, it's, 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 and that shows itself in countless numbers of ways. So one is constantly exploring, and I think integrating and uh, reintegrating one's being 
with the communication. I think this is a very, very important area of uh, work, inner work. <coughs> and in, in that, what must, I would say, must take priority within the work of spiritual work and spiritual endeavour are what practical applications do the teachings have for oneself. When one cuts everything away, that's, in a way, that's the question. And for that question <coughs> there, <coughs> pardon me, we need to keep our looking inwardly as well as outwardly very much alive. One of the things, the contemporary things here, which I think is um, important here, <coughs> I think it's important because it's partly to counteract a common view. If you've just come into a retreat, as some of you have done, and you see people walking around silently and slowly and mindfully, <coughs> you can look at that <coughs> group of people and say, my gosh, such an incredibly serious, stiff-necked, gaunt-looking, miserable lot of people I've ever seen in my whole life. What am I doing here? And when the mind looks, it, m it tends in that way to make a generalization. Some people are, are going through a hard time, no question, lots of things going on inside and one doesn't feel incredibly blissful at that time. And others, it's how they wish to be in this period of time. One of the things which occurs in that is the way, of course, we perceive. And we assume that our perceiving is the truth. And one of the things which has taken place, and I think to its, to its credit in the um, insight meditation expression, is that there is a lot of use of humour. And I think humour is, is a very essential part. And for, for many, many years, and very, very frequently, and I think um, the Buddha is no better than the rest of them. Um, you, you never see any humour. <coughs> and and it's, it's quite out, you know, the way that it gets interpreted. There is a passage in one of the texts with regard to the Buddha. And it is said of him, he never laughed. And at the very most, he smiled. And when he smiled, you saw nothing more than his front, <coughs> upper front three teeth. <laughs> now, can you imagine living like that? You know. And this was to show his detachment from the, the, the world. So somebody makes a really funny one-liner, and all you get from the Buddha is this, this lip moving up a bit and then, you know, and then coming back down again. <laughs> I mean, such a movement could be interpreted quite differently, you know. As he doesn't think it's very funny, he's judging me, he doesn't like me, obviously. <laughs> and rather unfortunately, I think historically, there hasn't been enough humour. And then someone said to me, they've been going to a, 
uh, just recently he'd go into a group and the person came and he said to me, he said, Christopher, he said, it's very serious. <laughs> the, the, this even, these evenings, they're very serious. And I thought, but it's a pity. Because when things get so serious, they get more and more intense. Someone gets more and more kind of closed around them. And I do feel, and I think one of the lovely things about insight meditation, and many of the teachers, both Asian and Western, that there is the use of humour, and I think it's a very important ingredient. And some of us still have memories of the pulpits and, and the priests and the, the rabbis and, and, and all that which is best forgotten. And... <laughs> And bring a little bit more, a little bit more um, life. And, and I rather like this in, in Buddhism. And Norman reminded me, one of the Rinpoches in, um, where was it? Um, in um, Canada. The Canadian TV people came. There's a good communication, wonderful. The Canadian TV people came to see um, one of the Rinpoches and was filming him and while filming him placed on the uh, while he was filming, asking him questions and there was a magnifying glass and it was placed in the palm of the hand of the Buddha and he's the interviewer said to him uh, What's, can you describe the altar and everything can you describe the altar then at the, at the end of it there was the, the interviewer said to him, what's that magnifying glass doing in the palm of the hand there of the Buddha image? And the Rinpoche said, I had nowhere else to put it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this kind of Humour out of oneself, uh, out of one's own tradition, is very, very healthy. And I'm <coughs> pleased to, s to see that this is, this is occurring in countless numbers of ways. So though one may carry the various images of our background, of our if we have any religious traditions and so forth, there are, there's a tremendous vitality taking place within the Christian church and within Judaism, and with, uh, within other forms of spirituality, which recognizes the heart, and rec recognizes feeling, and recognizes humor, and brings that out. And so one of the things which I noticed, there's an interreligious connectedness going on. So there's a tradition taking place, the respective tradition. There are the teachings which are taking place, and none of us can say, oh, this is it and undermine something else. Because within the teachings, there's a tremendous amount to be learnt. And I think this is very, very important. And the teachings are not just Buddhist teachings, they're also teachings from the Middle East and the Far East, teachings from the Native American tradition, teachings coming out of Africa, teachings of the theology, liberation movement of Central and South America. So there's a tremendous diversity of teachings going on and our receptivity and working with them enhances the whole quality of human life and I think in, in that respect I say 
much of that somberness which is associated with religion, with Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, is best forgotten. And, and we find ways to explore the new movements that are taking place within these traditions. <coughs> in what is taking place here and in our time and in our days here, which is just one form of expression of, of teachings, here within that we're using a certain kind of form a very simple form which is called sitting, a simple form which is called walking. And the simple form of sitting and walking is such that it takes away, it drops away many of the orthodoxies of religion and it allows us just to experience a more spiritual sense. And as what many interreligious people are beginning to say, the temple of life is the whole earth. We live in the temple of life. And, and that kind of sense is some of the communications within the contemporary teachings which are taking place. In, in that, there are of course, just sitting here, hundreds of people, it's no easy thing to do. And in our, in our sitting, and with that mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of being in touch, then we see what, we have to ask ourselves, what's been the primary kind of experience I have had today? Well, if I look back over this single day in, in my life, and, I, and I've gone through this day from early morning, this time I've been here, what, I've been here over 12 hours, what right now stands out for me? What, what stands out? And then, it's not enough just that something, as it were, may stand out. Where was my mind going? What was, what was I involved in today? What was the preoccupation? I would say it's not enough for it just to stand out and that it just arises and passes. But also, what kind of attitude did I bring to that experience? How did, how did I relate to that experience? How did I, what did I think about that which is arising for me today, living on this earth? And, and was there, as is mentioned in the text there, was there in that an independent attitude? An independent attitude meaning an attitude of mind which says, here is an event, an emotional event, a conceptual event, a fantasy event, an imaginary event, a perceived event, or whatever. In this event, which I experience, which is, stands out today, one might ask, what have I learned from this experience? Now when one's asked oneself, what, what am I learning, or what have I learned from this experience, I would say in that moment, one is bringing to that an independent attitude. And our willingness to, to learn is such of immense value. And hopefully we never ever 
gets stuck. We never ever stop. We never ever think, aha, now I know it all. But that learning attitude is something like a young seed, a young plant, which you and I water and water and water and water again so that any of life's experiences, and I mean any, any, without breaching the whole extraordinary range of them, is regarded without effort, without struggling, without saying I must, is regarded as an opportunity for learning. And if this attitude, if this way of relating, this independent attitude can be brought into the whole realm of physical, spiritual, emotional, psychological ex experiences, something goes on within the consciousness which is quite transformative in a way which we couldn't imagine before. I know from people on retreats and people I work with who are come to retreats and outside who are in truly in life-threatening situations, who are, whose life is exhausting rapidly, whose in the flower of youth have days or weeks or months left to live. And I've heard people, and not, not, not just saying it spontaneously or in a moment of being high, say, say and communicate and express their actual appreciation, their actual gratefulness for that being in that life-threatening situation. Something which is taken, their life is ebbing away moment by moment in the last days and weeks, and there's some transformative thing has gone on through observation, through looking, through working with, that that um, attitude of learning has changed, the most horrendous, terrible, frightening news into one which is the individual is actually grateful for, genuinely. And this transformative process, capable, we are all, we are all I believe, capable of as human beings, gives and places us more on the edge <coughs> of life, more living on the edge. And that attitude, that nurturing and that, and that spirit and vitality <coughs> is in itself very liberating. So that one begins to get a sense here that between what was said two and a half thousand years ago and all the teachings which, as, as it were, not all, I'm sorry, much of the teachings which seem to be time-based, time-based when the Buddha speaks of development, bawanga, he says, this development, um, maga, which means um, path, uh, the, the way. And, th and this means, as it were, we think in, in a way of moving in time, development and improving and evolving and so forth. And there, is a teachings, there are a teachings which take place which are trans-time, not of time as such. And we could say that this, the observation right here, right now, that independent attitude, the real willingness to learn, 
means that the time factor is not as important as we think. Getting somewhere in our meditation to some special state is not a priority that we imagine. And so there's less, as it were, thinking time-wise, the more, what's the fact right now? What's the reality right now? And then the teachings are an, are an immediate teaching, and a, let us say a key, a door, an open door, is this learning attitude which, is un which brings understanding of the conventional experience and communicates something of a liberating sense. Very liberating. Immediately. Not after years and years of striving and struggle and effort and working for and doing this, that and the other, but very close at hand. And all the traditions, all the deep spiritual traditions of the world acknowledge this immediacy. So let's see what's happening with our experiences, kind of attitude which we find with them. Let's be truly here and now based, what's happening right here and now. Let's give our fullness of care and attention to that. Let's see what is discoverable there. And then the teachings, as, as, as it were, in time, what happened last week, last month, two and a half thousand years ago, in a way is no different from what's happening right here. May all beings live with awareness. The learning attitude. May all beings be free. Let's have a couple of quiet minutes together, shall we?